0: Dot HTML is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at CageClub.me. That's cageclub.me Hey, everybody, and welcome back to HTML. I'm not Kevo.
1: And I'm not Nico. And we're here to talk about Infinity War. It happened.
0: It really did. It's been such a long journey here. I feel like when you suggested this project to me, I was like, no, there's no possible way we could do it. There isn't time.
1: But we toughed it out. I agree. When we first decided to jump in feet first, it was a little daunting. I know a lot of people are trying to cram in a Marvel marathon before endgame comes out so best of luck to everyone who's only starting now
0: i don't know i think if you're dedicated you've got time to get there but we got there and here we are this was such a wild ride because i feel like even though i'd already seen this movie before so realistically it had nothing traditionally new to offer me this was my first time watching it so far into this project and i feel like this project really did give me a new appreciation for the marvel universe i feel like i was able to pick up on nuances and threads that I probably never noticed before. It was really exciting to get to see these movies in new ways and to contextualize certain things, like... Realizing for the first time, the role that Spider-Man plays in this film is essentially acting as Tony's humanity, and Spider-Man was not originally a part of this big picture when they put this film together, because they didn't have the rights. So, it's things like that that really made looking at this project from this perspective different on this watch-through.
1: Yeah, we have gained a whole new understanding of the characters, the plots, the stories... You made a comment while we were watching how in character you felt the Guardians of the Galaxy were in this film. And we know that that's in part because James Gunn was involved in the filming. There's actually, I didn't see what moment it was, but there was some moment that Quill was going to have some kind of reaction that James Gunn and Chris Pratt were immediately like, that's not a character. It wasn't like plot consequential it was just some gag but even down to things like that they wanted to make sure that all of the characters were honored as who they were in their own franchises and I think that was accomplished very well I think also the war chant of the Jabari as they appear right before the battle I don't think that was scripted I've read the cast just did it because they've been filming so much that that was just in character for them and the Russo brothers were like yeah okay sure you guys you guys know wakanda better than we do do it
0: so much of this franchise has come down to these actors shaping the characters as much as they shape the performances the fact that robert downey jr is now famous the truth is i am iron man is an unscripted moment that so completely
1: defines the marvel universe is
0: unbelievable
1: and i love that i love that it goes right back to the beginning and that so much of this franchise is about the people who make it all of the different writers and directors all of the actors and performers and everyone and it's frustrating to talk about infinity war because even though they split it into two different titles it's part one of two you know even if they stand on their own it's part one of two so it's hard to discuss this film by itself without its proper conclusion but even by itself it is still so wonderful so well thought It's just, where the fuck was Hawkeye?
0: There are a number of notable omissions. It's amazing that you managed to get the entire way through the film without seeing the Hulk. Because I kept saying, wait, but we don't see the Hulk this movie, right? Right, we don't see the Hulk this movie... That's the thing, we don't see him? Because they did such a great job making the Hulk, who doesn't really appear, feel like a character. There was so much to this movie that really made me smile. Kebo, there was something you pointed out to me. When you pointed out that there are only five characters in this film who have not spoken in a previous film. That's nuts.
1: I went through and was looking at all the different character counts. There's 43 major named characters that... Five of them are brand new to this film. Everyone else has appeared before. It's uncanny that you have a major tentpole film in this franchise with so few new characters.
0: In that way, the film really serves its purpose. It brings together the threads and strands that have been laid out across the first 17 films. And in a fascinating way, creates more drama than a lot of them combined. That was one of the most interesting things. I do feel like there are ramifications for everyone from the snap. Now, another snap's at the end of the movie. But I kind of feel like there's no way to talk about this movie from any perspective or direction without talking about The Snap. The entire film was geared around The Snap. It had to be. The Snap is the payoff of Thanos' plan. Whether or not this was Thanos' plan from the start of production on the Marvel Cinematic Universe is irrelevant, because by the beginning of this movie, that is his plan, and that is what the entire film is working toward.
1: Yeah, they drew a ton of inspiration from the Infinity Gauntlet saga, as well as Hickman's 2013 Infinity comic, but they ultimately didn't really feel that Thanos trying to court death would have come across in a way that audiences would understand or relate to, which I suppose is where this whole culling half of all living creatures in the universe would probably be something people could understand better
0: it's such a broad stroke it's at least done in a way that feels like there's nuance it's not i'm gonna snap my fingers and just a bunch of people die to die he believes in his own bad bad plan because his plan lacks any real thought it lacks any real follow-through As we see, just half of existence is wiped out, so cars skid to their stopping points, and ultimately, this moment he causes will result in the deaths of more than half of things in existence, and whole societies will crumble, and planets will fall, and universes will be broken by this. His move was not well thought, and its execution was as hasty as the action itself.
1: And a lot of people are like, Thanos is right. There's too many people. We actually don't have too many people on this planet. We don't have enough. People who aren't hoarding wealth, perhaps, so, like, we could be taking better care of all the mouths there are on planet Earth, but I'm pretty sure it's a problem with the distribution of resources, not the people existing. And, like, that really stuck out in my head as we're listening to Thanos describe the situation on Titan, where he's like, it would have been even, it would have been poor people and rich people alike. Maybe, like there shouldn't be that disparity in your economy in the first place that probably wasn't helping ultimately thanos's
0: problem is with people like thanos people who believe that their version of fairness is all that is right and push that vision on others against their will so it's very funny that thanos winds up being the universe's greatest bully coming into this movie thanos is so ill defined i believe he's been played by josh brolin twice at this point in guardians of the galaxy and after Age of Ultron but I feel like this is the first time Thanos has any personality and I really don't like it.
1: Yeah especially on this watch I was like Is Thanos really a compelling villain, or is he just really tall with a deep voice? Everything about him, like the scene on Voromir, the second time we watched the movie, I was like, alright, this is my pee break, I don't even have to go that bad, but I'm definitely gonna go right now. I don't find him compelling, I don't find his sacrifice of Gamora compelling or interesting, I don't find him, com- you know, and, and, and that doesn't mean that I don't like the movie or the plot because you don't have to find a villain compelling or interesting. They could seize power anyway. That's not the point. It's still an interesting story for me to watch. I just know there's so many people that fanboy him and it's the same way as with Hydra. Why? What, what about this person is a hero to you? I think for
0: a lot of people, it's not about how he is a hero, but it's about how powerful he is. One thing I noticed throughout the film over and over again is even when there's nothing to compare his size to, Thanos always looked immense. They managed to make him look exaggeratively enormous, even when he was the only thing in the frame. That means they're trying to sell the immensity and power that is Thanos, and in a very He-Man-ish way, I think that's what draws people to a character like that. I don't think anybody's really eager to have purple balls on their chin.
1: so you mentioned thanos's previous appearances and in my research that you know kevo does kevo does so well i found more curiosity than clarity when it comes to the timeline of the mcu especially where phase three is concerned
0: now i'm already going into this agreeing with you unsure of what you're gonna say because i felt like At some point, even though Phase 3 was the strongest in many ways, it fell apart as a linear narrative. I felt like I was seeing people here and there, and the end credits were constantly used to confuse me even further.
1: Yeah, sometimes it really felt like they were flying by the seat of their pants. But it gets even more confusing than you would think. So, a lot of the movies came out unbelievably out of order in chronology this is something that a lot of people have obviously suspected for some time but it goes beyond even things like saying spider-man homecoming takes place eight years after the avengers which is literally not possible
0: i feel like you tried to help me understand the timeline a little bit better so i could piece together some of my ideas for an upcoming project we have and there were some things you pointed out that really shocked me
1: they shocked me too And frankly, it even starts as early as Phase 2. For example, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, only takes place about two or three months after Volume 1. I'm pretty sure Volume 1 goes about where it would go, so like 2014 in terms of chronology, but even though there is a huge amount of space between those two films, they're very close together, which means that there is even more space between Volume 2 and Infinity War.
0: That was one of the most mind-blowing pieces of the puzzle. But I actually think the confusion starts before that the placement of the incredible hulk has long riddled fans with anxiety
1: oh you want to go back that far yeah basically incredible hulk iron man 2 and thor happen in the same week which week yeah i don't know i mean obviously iron man 2 and thor have to happen very close together because that's why colson is called away from his babysitting gig to go look at the hammer and a funny thing happens on the way there as many of you may remember but Um, Incredible Hulk happening around the same time... I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. It makes me question
0: when the events shown in the flashback previously two-minute montage that opens the Incredible Hulk, that I guess is vaguely the Eric Bana Hulk, but not really at all. Not really. It makes me wonder when that would have happened.
1: There's probably a number that they throw out at some point. You only watch the Incredible Hulk when you have to, so people don't really memorize those dates. But it's not something that is talked about bruce's timeline and when the hulk first happened most everything in the first two phases though is if not spaced out the way it hit theaters is chronologically correct but phase three is just like okay so civil war happens where civil war happens but as many people have picked up on black panther pretty much has to happen the week after civil war even though there's almost two full years between those films coming out. And that explains
0: why they feel so closely related, both thematically, visually. There's something very much that ties those films together, and I don't just mean the abundance of the Black Panther and Winter Soldier.
1: Yeah, it's weird to put that movie then so far away from where it would go thematically, chronologically, narratively.
0: I remember in discussion we pointed out that we felt Thor Ragnarok should have been the film to
1: come directly before Infinity War. Yeah, it has a scene that basically leads right into it. Thor Ragnarok is said to happen during Civil War, but again, this is where things get confusing. Doctor Strange has an easter egg early in it where he basically turns down helping Rhodey. Rhodey isn't mentioned by name, but the description of the patient that needs his help very much fits a War Machine after his accident with Civil War.
0: Right, that was one of the things we loved the most in that movie. We were so excited about that.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure i read that dr strange starts before civil war and ends up current that i mean that just can't possibly be correct and frankly thor ragnarok taking place during civil war makes no sense either because the scene at the end of thor ragnarok leads directly into infinity war so dr strange takes place after civil war and has a scene in its end credits that lead into thor ragnarok and thor ragnarok leads almost immediately directly into infinity war but one of those things takes place before and during civil war and the other thing takes place during civil war when civil war is said to have been two years before infinity war i'm so mad my whole head hurts just like
0: the whole head the whole of it i also think it's important to note that i kind of love that it's mostly been a lot of time since civil war because I feel like that gave all of these teams time to grow up, these groups time to form better together. I actually like the emotional energy that this new Guardians have, except for annoying teenage group. I think most of these groups really do benefit from this extended time, but the fact that it's not clear makes it so hard to understand. I don't know how far along Pepper and Tony are into their relationship. I'm excited they're getting married. But I don't know how long it's been since Homecoming exactly. Except for the fact that we've kind of pieced it together.
1: Well, Homecoming has to take place a few months after Civil War. I can't remember how many it says exactly, whether it's a few or if it's a specific number. Not a year. Definitely months. But then Spider-Man Homecoming takes place mostly after black panther but black panther came out after that one at the very least we can point to the fact that marvel has no control over when their spider-man movie was coming out sony just puts it wherever it wants it and frankly yeah they can put tom holland wherever they want i do appreciate
0: that i think one of the reasons that i would really love a comprehensive timeline that justifies and rectifies so many of these inconsistencies is because I want to understand these narratives as best as I can. There is an emotional disconnect between the end of Ragnarok and the beginning of this film for the Asgardians. It's not that I don't believe that those two scenes could be direct, but I would love to believe that the Asgardians gave some amount of chase. I'm not saying I need them to jump from Thanos every 33 minutes, but I really feel like there is something to the idea that there has to have been time between the end of Ragnarok and the beginning of this film for the Asgardians.
1: And that's the thing, too. We saw Thanos grab his gauntlet out of his vault in Ultron, but he only decimated Xandar last week. And you're right, I imagine there must have been some amount of fight, although the distress call at the beginning says they don't have any weapons. Like, there had to have been some, some amount of struggle. How much time has passed, you know? This all happens so fast and so slow at the same time.
0: And part of what we've discussed is the fact that the films suffer from a financial limitation and, in many ways, a a time-based limitation that stopped them from being able to film every cute little moment that takes place between these major pillars that they choose to set as the films. I would love to see how many times Tony and Peter have crossed paths in the last two years. I would love to know how frequently Captain America ran into somebody that he knew from his time as an Avenger on secret missions, leaving Wakanda periodically with... Black Widow to keep the world safe from threats only they understand. It would be incredible to see these moments. I understand why I can't, but having a stronger idea of the timeline might allow me to make those stories feel realer and less like I'm filling in the gaps for these storytellers.
1: Mm, Yeah, you know, I was just saying the other day to you about how I wish that some of this had come out during the era of Disney Plus so we could have gotten... Marvel streaming shows about what happened. I didn't realize how much I missed Cap until I saw him on our screen again and the whole Secret Avengers thing that he has going on. It would have been cool to see what he was doing in his downtime. We know he must have been up to some amount of superheroics. It's who he is. But beyond them not really having the avenue to pursue those stories it's also highly cost prohibitive chris evans is expensive and for a reason that's why we're so excited about
0: these new disney plus shows it's going to be an opportunity to explore these characters in ways that we haven't had a chance to with the films Yeah, and with such big names, too. Seeing Scarlet Witch and Vision in this, I couldn't help but realize how much I want to see more of their story, so I'm very eager to see that.
1: Yeah, you know, I know that I'm Mr. Queer Visibility, and I frequently point to them as a pairing of a lady and a robot, and there being room for that in these movies, but I do, I love them as a pairing. I think that Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany pour so much raw emotion into these characters. I root for Wanda and Vision as a couple, and to know that they're getting a spotlight and that we get to see more of them is so cool.
0: Can't think of a better time to see more of them. You ready to get
1: into this Infinity War business? Yeah, let's do this. Snap, snap.
0: can't think of a better word for the beginning of this film than unforgiving once they make it clear that no one is safe and nothing is sacred the movie begins rolling along like at a clip no marvel movie ever has this is Easily the greatest number of characters
1: that die before the opening title crawl. I think if I were to use another word, it would be bleak. It's definitely a heavy tone to start the film on. Like you said, this is the highest body count if we are going beyond just named characters. All of the Asgardians, as far as we are aware, were just slaughtered after making such a big deal on Thor Ragnarok about We saved the people, if not Asgard. Some amount of space between those stories probably would have been more appreciated on my part. I understand that sometimes life is that hard, but, you know, this is a movie about alien gods.
0: And because so much of these films were leading up to the idea of who or what or even, like, how a Thanos is or could be, so much of this is a layered sense of the Thanos journey and struggle to survive this across the cosmos, that opening on Ebony Maw being like, You have been saved by Thanos, was... Such an interesting departure. While we're constantly dealing with gods and godlike fixtures and iconographic heroes being revered as more than humans, I would say this is the first time there's like a devout cult of someone. And that's even having so many Asgardians.
1: Yeah. Even the letdown of that ending of Ragnarok with this death, I guess in a way that's how you can show the gravity of Thanos and have him kill a population that we have come to care about without having him destroy all of Earth and for sure the cult and ebony maw squidward as tony continually referred to him as that opening is so creepy and disturbing the idea of as you're lying they're dying the people who are killing you telling you no it's good it's good that you're dying like it's horrifying and what a horrific way to open the film it's no wonder they opened with the marvel studios logo in dead silence for i think the first time ever
0: and one of the other things they did right away was they let you you know that this was not going to be like any marvel movies villain that had come before it every time i see thanos standing there and turning in that slow pan through the ship i have to do a triple take to realize the thing he's throwing around like a rag that he's using to clean up the floor that's thor odinson that's the main character of the thor trilogy who has starred alongside the avengers in multiple avengers films that's the guy They bring in two hours into the movie to take out the alien horde. And Thanos is dragging him.
1: Yeah, think about later in the film when Thor shows up again with Stormbrigger and Bruce is like, Ah, you guys are screwed now, but flash also to the scene with rocket and thor where thor is saying he's never faced me and rocket has to be like yeah he did and thor's like well he's never faced me twice like you can have your ass handed to you sometimes and thanos certainly is a character who has done that and it starts the movie what a tone to start on having him best not just thor and not just another great avenger in hulk but the first avengers villain loki is bested by him now
0: and because so many of the other films have been the story that leads up to the epic battle of the six stones it's so important That the first scene is for the glory of two stones. We have Thanos pushing the Power Stone into Thor's head in this creepy skull crush, this uncomfortable murder-his-brain kind of moment. Meanwhile, Loki's just got the Tesseract hanging out in between space. There's two stones in this scene, and that is different than... There are sometimes three films in a row with one stone between them.
1: Yeah, and I think it was important to start this film with Thanos having a stone, I wish that there had been a way they could have done that in the story that wouldn't have involved decimating Xandar off screen. For a few reasons, I don't think that that does justice to Guardians Volume 1 that made us care so much about Xandar and painted such a vivid picture of it. Plus, You know, later the Guardians haven't even heard that this happened, and it's been a week. Xandar is the capital city of the Nova Corps. I I can't imagine that that's not headline news that the Guardians would have seen on space Twitter.
0: You would think that somebody in the universe would have heard about the death of Xandar and Willa and Buffet. Ha. So, I think the thing that made me the most emotional in this over-the-top incredible sequence, Loki dying hulk being tossed about by thanos like it's nothing the moment that definitely broke me the most was thor and heimdall's momentary eye connection thor has this look on his face like don't save me save hulk and heimdall he in his dying breath says by the gods let the dark magic flow through me one last time and i'm just like no heimdall you were
1: always my favorite don't go like this I feel bad because I don't have that same emotional connection to Heimdall. I love Idris Elba's portrayal of the character, but you have a much stronger sense of who Heimdall is. He hasn't really been given a lot of space in these films. And, you know, it's unfair to the character. I do love the character. For me, the... Strong emotional moment in this scene, even before this revelation that we keep talking about, was Loki looking at Thor before calling himself Odinson. I thought that that was such a lovely moment for that character, and once again, he's ultimately trying to do the right thing when you think he's doing the wrong thing, and even though he was in the middle of trying to act like he's betraying Thor. He has this moment to show Thor how much he cares.
0: And he still says rightful heir of Jotunheim. (laughs) I'm just like, you son of a bitch, pick a side. You can either inherit Asgard or Jotunheim, but you don't get both. You don't get both.
1: Well, the tangent just very slightly, you know, they are gods, they do see themselves as above mortals, and it's something that I imagine if we had seen more of Natalie Portman in the film franchise, we would have delved into a little bit better, that huge disparity. It's probably hard for Thor to think of people from Midgard as people, because we're not on the same scale in any way it's not like i'm saying well of course he thinks those people are garbage but thor is over a thousand years old
0: and not to jump ahead but i'd made a comment during ragnarok that i'm like no as guardians just have to look like they're made of better bits and then lo and behold when we're watching infinity war gamora is like thor is made of better things and drax is like thor is made of such good i'm turning gay and it is amazing
1: yeah he got pretty hard for thor the baby of a pirate and an angel is actually hysterically accurate for thor's aesthetic especially at this point where he's rocking the eye patch but yeah yeah
0: the hulk is the biggest deal in avengers assemble and he's such an enormous deal in age of ultron that the culmination of the film involves sending him off world because he's too much for one planet to handle in fact thor was challenged by Hulk in all of his vastitude. So for everything we just said about Thor is the guy you send in, Hulk's the guy that the guy you send in is afraid of. And Hulk being thrown to Earth, the way he is thrown to Earth as the only way to save him, is a way to say the stakes are so much higher than they've ever been, and we've crashed cities into planets.
1: And not only that, but that he's sent running scared. You mentioned in the last episode how Hulk isn't in this film. He actually is in this film, but he is only in the first five minutes beyond those brief, brief glimpses where Bruce is trying to shift. You brought up Hulk is a guy that Thor is afraid of. And not only was Thor tossed around like a ragdoll in the first five minutes of this film, but so was Hulk. And I do... Sometimes feel like this opening scene goes on a little bit too long. It's uh, over 11 minutes before we smash into the title card. But that shot of Bruce repeating over and over again, Thanos is coming, Thanos is coming, terrified. And Mark Ruffalo's portrayal of that terror really do help set the tone and the understanding for how powerful this character is.
0: And speaking of great performances, because I agree, every single performance from everybody in that opening scene, I don't know who plays Ebony Maw. I'm going to assume it's Dobby from Harry Potter. He got work as Ebony Maw. Right. He grew up and he looks great. Great for Dobby. Dobby. I think it's Dobby J House Elf. That's his name. Right. And I feel like everybody gives a killer performance, including both Benedict's. Now, I know I was incredibly hard on Doctor Strange, the film and Kind of specifically, Doctor Strange, the character, as it relates to Benedict Cumberbatch's performance, but to be completely honest with you here, his chemistry, with every single person he shares a scene with, is show-stealing. Benedict Cumberbatch sacrificed so much of that bravado that defined the character in the first movie, and really, ultimately, was such a team player. It was probably the most impressed I was by anybody's transition from their quality in their first film to this film, with an honorable mention going to little Tommy Holland and Mr. Stark I Don't Feel Well being one of the most heartbreaking. When he says, I'm sorry, I just can't hold it together. Why? We're only at the start of this episode. Why would you do that to me this early? So that's the honorable mention, but really standout performance of the film is Benedict Cumberbatch giving his all to be the most ensembliest ensemble member and really allowing everybody to shine off of him as well. Really incredible performance.
1: And one of the really cool things about Benedict Cumberbatch as... Stephen Strange is it would be so easy for his performance to become nearly identical to Robert Downey Jr.'s as... Tony Stark and Iron Man, because they are very similar characters in terms of they are incredibly wealthy, they are unbelievably intelligent, they are incredibly proficient at what they do. The strong difference is that I feel like Benedict Cumberbatch's Stephen Strange by this point has a very different air of unflappable confidence that Robert Downey Jr. can't bring to Tony Stark, because even with this new nanite suit, It's not literally in his blood. His power is all external apart from his mind. Stephen Strange has the mystic arts, and no matter what happens, he will always be able to probably pull some spell out of his back pocket. But if Tony is out of gadgets, he's out of gadgets, and that's it, and he's fucked. And so there's a different air of confidence between the two of them. I think Benedict Cumberbatch does a much better job in this film of tempering that confidence with, if not humility, geniality. He's a lot friendlier than he was in the previous film, whereas Tony Stark is frequently standoffish because of his shortcomings.
0: I have literally never in my life heard the difference between Doctor Strange and Iron Man put so beautifully and succinctly. That's incredible. I really appreciate that distinction because that distinction explains so much about what we get from Tony as soon as he shows up. He's talking about having kids. He's obsessed with a legacy. He has what is clearly to pepper a new arc reactor. So it feels like this Tony is bound and defined by his humanity and his finiteness where Doctor Strange is unbound and able to become joyful because of
1: his limitlessness and his infinity. And it's exemplified very early in the film when we first see dr strange he's in pretty schlubby house clothes he's wearing a hoodie and jeans and In an instant, he changes into his cloak and his sorcerer's gear. When Tony needs to suit up, part of it is they're being dramatic, but it does take a while for him to shift and his gear to appear. Their abilities are so different from each other. And you're right, Robert Downey Jr. does bring so much humanity to this role. But I don't love that part of what the writers tried to use to exemplify that is this baby shit at the beginning of the movie i'm sorry robert downey jr is over 50 gwyneth paltrow is 45 i don't know how old pepper Potts is supposed to be but it's getting kind of late in life for you to be discussing having kids that's a statement and i get that but especially with the lives that they lead and the fact that within the first half hour pepper is mad at him again for going off to save the world why do you guys think that that's something you should be doing with your lives I actually think it's more about
0: creating context for the loss of Peter to be truly devastating. I think it's more about what it says because this is Tony Stark. This is Tony Stark, and you know what? Tomorrow he's not going to want a kid anymore. Tomorrow he's going to want to build his own. He's going to want to build his own Bumblebee. He's actually really tired of having cars and Iron Man suits, and he would like a car that is an Iron Man suit going forward. And he's going to completely forget about this kid thing. But by bringing the kid thing back up, it creates an interesting contrast with losing peter and so much of him being like maybe we should have a future that that conversation is interrupted by dr strange and bruce to be like no the end of the world is here immediately we're told anybody who's dreaming of a future doesn't get to dream anymore
1: i get that and i really hope it develops in the way that you're saying i really also hope that we see some better development of Tony and Pepper's relationship you know i i i've said so many times in this show pepper you have to understand that he's a superhero I don't ever want to seem like I'm coming too hard down on her side of things because I frequently see myself as the Pepper Potts to a Tony Stark. I understand being that character. But then that character needs to either understand the person that they are in a relationship with or they need to move on. There are things about being married to Iron Man that mean you're married to Iron Man. And if you don't love Iron Man 2, not the film, Iron Man as well, you know? Absolutely. You
0: cannot separate Tony Stark from iron man any more than you can separate the idea of captain america from the idea of his shield as we're going to talk about captain america does not have his shield in this film instead he has those gorgeous wakandan shield bracers Mm. and they still function the same way he is still the thing that's going to take the hit so you don't have to but once we move forward in this movie with the reality of everything tony is being faced with and bruce being here and Tony even catching Bruce up on everything he's missed. We get, for the first time, like, a legitimate, legitimate backstory on the Stones. And I guess I'd never realized that we needed one before.
1: We've gotten it, like, in drips and drabs. I don't think that Wong's presentation is very different from the Collectors in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. But by this point, like, we have a better idea of who's after the Stones... We know where all of the stones are except for the soul stone, so what I wrote down as Wong's quick Infinity Stone PowerPoint succinctly telling us everything we need to know about Infinity Stones inside of a minute was appreciated. I felt like this really slowed down the pace of the film right out the gate, though, once we get past the PowerPoint. It's like almost five minutes before the spinning disc shows up, and it's all exposition. It's all Bruce panicking. There's almost a full minute of tony standing there in dead silence before he notices dr strange's hair moving and like i get building a sense of drama but that was a lot right at the top of the film there were three
0: major things that stood out to me that are probably the only three things that stood out to me that you didn't already cover i love the way we watch these movies now we've done this so many times together we have this to a rhythm i thought tony explaining the avengers breaking up and bruce being like what like the beatles like a band that was kind of reductive. I understand what they were going for, but I don't think Bruce has been in space unsurrounded by pop culture for so long that he would be like, what is Break Up? Is it like Beatles Band? It just felt a little too hard like they were going for that old movie, Empire Strikes Back, which they did temper this movie with a reference to the greatest film series of all time, but I could not help but notice that. I also wanted to say that the moment that Tony goes out into New York to see the giant spinning disc, really reminded me of when they left the Sanctum in Doctor Strange. I thought that was a really cool callback, and I appreciated the Manhattan Specialty Foods truck there to remind you it was Manhattan because
1: these have started taking place everywhere. I hear what you're saying about Bruce's comment being reductive, but I think that's actually even the point that they're trying to go for. I think Bruce is trying to be reductive of that conflict. He wasn't there, he doesn't understand, but when last he left the Avengers, they were a team and a family and a force For good, and in his mind, what petty squabble could possibly come between them to break up what is supposed to be the defenders of planet Earth? He always thought that he was the weakest member of the group, so to learn that it fell apart after he left it must be pretty shocking like the way that he's shocked to hear that there's avengers ben and jerry flavors which for me was a pretty funny moment and i like that wong and strange prefer the hulk flavor because it reminded me of the scarlet witch moment from civil war he's used to thinking people hate him so to hear that anything about him could be preferred is nice for that character And speaking of things that Bruce has to get used to, at this point, we
0: kind of get the first Avengers fight, but this is not the Avengers you're expecting. It's Doctor Strange, Wong, incredibly human Bruce Banner who is not the Hulk, Iron Man, and Spider-Man. This is not the fight you think is going to define the Avengers movie for the first half an hour.
1: And it's especially funny because Bruce has met... None of these people. And even Tony is meeting Doctor Strange for the first time. So there's really no one in this fight who is... Not off kilter because of it.
0: One of the things I really appreciated is that they didn't make me feel like Wong was an accessory. I felt like Wong was able to do anything Doc Strange could do in the same way War Machine could do anything Tony could do. The difference was Doc Strange has the Eye of Agamotto and Wong did all of the other super great portal throwing people throwing. But I felt like Wong got some really cool moments. Considering I'm going to be really annoyed in about five minutes when he disappears for the rest of the film. He got to explain the Infinity Stones. He got in some great
1: hits. This
0: Avengers was really exciting for me and I would watch this movie.
1: Yeah, and this is a pretty great fight. It balances what I felt was the film slowing down for a good six minutes pretty well to give us this eight minute battle. Have us going all over the place. It was a very clever way to bring Peter into the fight and this is probably one of my favorite stamios of the entire mcu him as the crotchety bus driver saying have none of you ever seen a spaceship before it was a really funny and amazing counterbalance to his stameo in avengers assemble where he said superheroes in new york bah
0: i do love that that brings in spider-man i think Peter Parker showing up adds a certain magic, a certain realness to, oh man, this is just happening in the middle of the city. And Ned helping him out by screaming, oh God, we're all going to die. If I have a complaint, it's that we have one man of color, Wong, great, and we have no women in this fight. This was a really long time to have no women characters on screen, no female fighters defending anybody. This was a long time to kind of switch back into the reductive kind of first phase lacking in diversity
1: i absolutely agree and the only statement that i would make by way of explanation or reasoning not defense is I mean, this proves what the problem is with the franchise overall. There just aren't enough female characters overall. It was the problem with Age of Ultron. It's not that it was bad that Black Widow was kidnapped. It's bad that Black Widow being kidnapped means the only female hero on the team is now gone. We know as a fact that there is going to be a ton more space for female heroes in the Avengers Endgame, but that doesn't make up for not having enough in this half. If you were looking at those two walls with the baseball cards and the characters, and you were seeing who's going to be in which film, you need to pay attention to making sure there is that sort of balance, especially in a story where the villain is all about balance. Despite the incredible stakes
0: and how many characters they pack in here, And all of the relationships they're going to need to establish at a rapid pace. They managed to give us some amazing dialogue. Like when Tony says, dude, you're embarrassing me in front of the wizards. I think that's great that that's the thing he lobs at Banner for not being able to summon the Hulk push
1: yeah and when he says to pete he's from space he came here to steal a necklace from a wizard like it's comedy but at the same time that is the most succinct way to say what is realistically happening right now and pete's just sort of like sure gotta save the wizard
0: something i also want to give a little nod to this movie for doing is it entered the age of the magical modern blockbuster where You can add a character that doesn't exist and everybody's all about it. Star Wars has long had the droids who somehow managed to add so much to each scene despite no dialogue. I frequently think Chewbacca had the best dialogue in The Force Awakens. Here, it's Doctor Strange's cloak. Doctor Strange's
1: cloak is the surprise breakout character. He's like Balloon in Winnie the Pooh. He just shows up and wants to save the day. I would more compare him to Carpet. From Aladdin. Oh, it's a replacement for Jarvis! In the ways in which Doc Strange is Iron Man, his cloak is sort of his semi-autonomous constant companion. That's a really interesting comparison.
0: One of the things I love the most about the cloak and all of the ways the cloak performs throughout this film is it seems like none of the Black Order—I'm sorry, I can't call them the Children of Thanos— None of the Black Order seem to know what to do with magic, and neither does Thanos. It's as if Thanos is unsure of how to interact with the magic side of power, and he really only understands raw blasty blast.
1: I can't really tell. Ebony Maw is like, your spells mean nothing to me, and like he does that thing where he's like putting those crystals from Doc Strange like up against his face in that very pinhead sort of torture way, so I couldn't really get a beat on does he have magic or does he just have telepathy, but it's the same way where we are constantly like does Scarlet Witch actually have magic or does she have telepathy and some bit of hypnosis? What's going on in these films? Your point is still incredibly valid. They're constantly surprised by these little tricks and things that they do. I also think it's funny that Uh, you referred to the cloak as a character itself. I think in a lot of ways... Peter's suit is also a character in itself that frequently reacts without him asking it to. And that goes all the way back to his own film as well, and Karen being a character.
0: It really does work for me that there are so many not exactly sentient, sentient elements to the dynamic of this team. I also think it's fascinating how no one's sure how to handle this fight. Ebony Maw is pissed as he's flying through the city. This is not what he expects, Call Obsidian being thrown through the portal clearly is not what he expects. Everybody here puts up a really strong fight, and then Tony is baffled. Tony can't believe he's heading into space. And I think that's one of the things that tells us early on, the Avengers are in some deep shit. Tony has no idea what he's
1: doing. Yeah, you know, I actually wondered if, it's not stated, but I wondered if part of why Tony released... Peter's suit wasn't just to keep him from falling, but was to give Peter a massive power upgrade before he knew he was leaving Earth to do whatever this was. Kind of like he's trying to leave behind an insurance policy, and that's part of why he's so annoyed at Peter for sneaking along, because he thought, Peter's back in New York, they'll be taken care of. I feel like a lot of the Black Order is a little uneven, though, because... You know, what you're saying is true that this is a bigger fight than they were expecting. But then there's moments like when Tony is just talking and Ebony Maw is like, he exhausts me. I'm getting really tired of overdramatic hyperbolic villains like that. It really compromises the monk-like demeanor that he constantly seems to have for him to say that someone talking to him ...exhausts him. You're being an overdramatic bitch, and that really undercuts your actual drama.
0: You can either be... The brilliant, dark, mysterious guy, or you can be the -the over-the-top Vincent Price, but you don't
1: get to win the Olivier and the Razzie for the same performance. It's like the difference between Stephen Strange and Tony Stark, like we've been saying. Tony would say someone exhausts him. I don't think at this point in his journey that Strange would make that sort of snarky comment. When he makes a snarky comment, it's what he means. And speaking of snarky
0: comments, I can think of no other time. Once Peter, Strange, and Tony are aboard the ship with Ebony Maw heading off, Wong is protecting the Sanctorum, we cut to what, to me, really enforces why I said last episode, you can't call this an Avengers movie, it's a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. This Guardians bit
1: is like the most Guardians Guardians bit that ever Guardianated. From... Even before the moment the Guardians appear on screen with Rubber Band Man playing, which one of my favorite songs, so I was thrilled, one of the era-appropriate choices that they made in terms of Guardians music, and it was chosen, of course, by James Gunn, and I really feel that everything about this opening scene with the Guardians, it's... Both an amazing introduction for any MCU fans who haven't watched those films yet, and yet is not a boring rehash of any Guardian stuff that we have seen before. It perfectly introduces them while not feeling repetitive about any Guardian scenes we have already seen.
0: And that's maybe why I think the space between Guardians 2 and here is necessary. I like these Guardians. I'm going to say it. I like Chubby (laughs) Star-Lord. And, you know, maybe I see it now. Maybe I see where he is nowhere near the incredibly low body fat of the first two Guardians films, but he still looks incredible. And I think they play up. That weird little mustache of his a little too hard in this movie, but it's really interesting the familial dynamic they played off of. In the first two, they definitely felt like a ragtag team of mercenaries, but the Russos and Marcus McFeely really know how to craft... A family in a way that breaks my heart, and I loved this team of guardians.
1: Yeah, and I think letting them be the ones to interact with Thor was a very clever choice that ultimately paid off very well. I love all the interactions on the ship, and as they continue between Thor and Rocket, there are times, honestly, where I felt that Thor. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't even out of character. Maybe it's just parts of his character that I don't like. Like I. that he's funny now, but when they leave, and Thor is like, farewell, morons! It's a little much. He knows what the word moron means if it had been more of like a self-effacing fellow morons because we're all idiots trying to go after thanos maybe but as funny as i found all of the thor basically cucking quill stuff he relished it a little bit too well for someone who is supposed to be a god king
0: and one of the things about thor is he is kind of the yo you want to see how big my hammer is god king and that is a lot of fun But I do feel like on the heels of having lost everybody in his entire world, he's not showing the kind of humility that he seems to be showing five minutes
1: later when he's with Rocket and he's like, he's never fought me twice. You know what that just fucking means? That means that Peter Quill brings out the worst in everyone. Yeah, I'm saying it because you know what? I made the same point about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and how Rocket becomes such a better character when Quill is not around. He is a man-child. He brings everyone down. I don't want to feel that way. I want to like the character of Peter Quill, and we'll have to see what happens if he's in a substantial amount of Endgame and when he's inevitably in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But as of the first two movies and as of this movie, he mostly just makes everyone around him worse. And the only thing that makes him
0: better is everyone around him. So it's a unique situation where he's sort of poisoning the
1: very well he needs to keep drinking from. That was amazingly clever phraseology. And I want to use that in everything. Great job. From the moment Thor, I don't know how else to you, what noise does a dick make when it hits the table? From the moment
0: Thor makes that noise against the hood of their ship, Everything about Star-Lord's every insecurity is blasted across the film, and this is really important because re-watching this movie as a series of Star-Lord being told he'll never be good enough and he's second rate and he'll never have the destiny he believes he's entitled to now that he's established his good guy family doesn't justify by any stretch his actions later on, but it kind of explains the mental duress that went into him being the biggest piece of shit of all time.
1: It does. It really does. You know, for all the ways that I complain about him, I have never once, I believe, said that Peter Quill's psychology doesn't make sense. He is forever the eight to ten year old boy who was abducted from earth and is stunted in that place and he's still an interesting character the way snape is in harry potter but i still want to see the character grow and become better in the ways that his compatriots are
0: gamora ultimately becomes the tragic character of this film because she's in so little of so much of what is about her if we recontextualize thanos's insanity as something that can be almost rectified with reality it seems as if he wants a better world for the people that will come after him though an emperor god like thanos never believes himself going to end but he has to think that he's creating a better world for gomorrah He has to believe that if she's this great thing that he's going to have to sacrifice, that this is worth it for her. So the tragedy of Gamora is she is so much of what this film is about and she gets to be in so little of it, much the tragic female character we are so used to these comic books portraying. I maybe thought better of the Russos and Marcus McFeely, but I think Zoe Saldana gives her best Gamora performance in this film.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure, and seeing her character develop over the previous two films and into this one has been great. You know, you make an interesting point about characters like Thanos and what they want and what they believe is right. And it really makes me realize for the first time that I'm nervous that the creative team on these films will solely give us beating the crap out of Thanos as a conclusion. When it comes to the sort of Ideologist like Thanos, this demagogue who feels so strongly in their conviction, even when it is going to hurt so many people. The only real defeat of a character like that is making them see the error of their ways and making them see how they're hurting people and making them see a better way and accept it. And I think we might just end up getting a blow to the head, and that might have to be okay. But, you know, part of what we do on this show is spend so much time thinking thinking and thinking and thinking about the core of these stories and what they boil down to in terms of themes and the message they're trying to convey i don't know just a bit of a tangent that popped into my head as you were talking about thanos
0: And I think it's an important tangent because the name of the fucking movie is Endgame. They're not playing around. They are telling you that this is a summation. This is the answer to the question that has been building for 11 years. If the payoff is not worth the setup, you have wasted a lot of movie tickets.
1: Especially when they feel they have put so much thought and time into a character like Thanos. I mentioned last episode, they did a whole draft of the movie where it was from Thanos' perspective, basically. They themselves refer to Thanos as the main character of this movie. That we're discussing right now infinity war and if you put that much thought into a character like that you have to put that much thought into what their actual defeat would be beyond mere death
0: death is clearly not enough to persuade thanos of anything thanos in this franchise does not think of death as a definitive he seems to think of legacy in that way Thanos is kind of every over-the-top white male villain we have seen echoed through time. His obsession is with legacy, this notion of what will I be.
1: Thanos is kind of just the purple skull. (laughs) Nice. I like that. Which brings us to someone whose skull is red, whose heart is not black, but is instead full of love for someone else very red. Yeah,
0: I don't know. There was something about that scene between Wanda and Vision where I just started like squeeing and I don't know if it's because I grew up a fan of theirs and I love Wanda and I love Vision together but there was something so great and genuine and real about their connection which is fascinating because they're not just two of the Avengers that have had the least screen time in general and while they have had enough time together I didn't realize I cared that much about them coming into this film that their romance so brought something out of me and I don't know if it's the implicit nature of How many times this has to have happened that gave me that ability to contextualize some of what the Avengers have been up to, that it was little sentences that built palaces of possibilities in my head. And I was just so eager to see more of this drama unfold. It was really special to get to share it with you, too, because I love how we love these kinds of, no, love can do it against any odd stories. It's like we would have loved Hunger Games so much more if Katniss and Peeta weren't so dumb.
1: (laughs) I don't know what it is about this pairing. They've had such little screen time. They were both introduced in the same film and have only appeared in Civil War. But it's like I mentioned, it's so much the raw emotion that Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany put into these characters. Having grown up in the era that we did, we always will identify with some sort of against all odds pairing because that much like the x-men being a metaphor for gayness was frequently the only sort of expression of love that we were able to identify with growing up it's i'm sure one of the reasons that i enjoy goliath and elisa so much as a pairing on gargoyles these characters whose romance has these obstacles and the obstacle isn't internal it's external we really better identify with stories like that having grown up not being able to see a lot of gay love stories and as i've mentioned you know i i love this pairing but they are also one that i frequently point to of it's a lady and a robot and there's that line Where Vision says, I'm beginning to think we should have stayed in bed, and Wanda kind of like slyly smiles at him in the middle of this battle. There's that moment of sexual chemistry between these two characters that have only really been in one and a half films so far, and no gayness anywhere. In my heart
0: of hearts, Cull Obsidian can be gay with the weird little spindly gremlin one, the one that looks
1: like like a bleached haunted mask. That's not the same. But I hear what you're saying. Cullen Bleachy make much love. So much love. And frankly, there is still so much to be said about Captain America and Bucky. I have a comment for later about the fact that every male interaction in this film is pretty much a handshake, except for Bruce hugging Tony and Cap hugging Bucky. Significant. But no, for real, it's Proxima
0: Midnight, it's Cull Obsidian, it's Ebony Maw, and it's Bleachy Mask. What's Bleachy Mask's name? Corvus Glaive. Corvus Glaive, God damn it! I even knew that at one point, but seeing as their names are, like, said once, if said at all, I
1: don't blame myself. Oh, I'm surprised that you got all of the ones that you got. I constantly forget the other ones. It doesn't help that, like, y'all didn't need two names. Like, Maul would have been enough. You don't need a first name and a last name that are both ridiculous human words for edgelord, hot topic... My Chemical Romance kind of things. This
0: battle, though, this battle, this battle, this battle, this battle, this battle that I'm going to keep referring to as this battle because it manages to take place over maybe the largest square mileage of any battle ever. It just keeps bouncing from location to location. It is like a
1: pinball through a city. And not only that, but... Even with all of the action and excitement that we have seen throughout the film so far, I really feel like the first moment that the entire audience unanimously cheered was when the, not as they are dubbed in the film, but as we have been calling them, secret Avengers show up and Cap is standing there with those exposed forearms and and falcon flies in and you gotta wonder how has he been keeping those wings under wraps for the last two years since civil war like that's that's not that's not a small bit of gear
0: their return is so triumphant and so epic because it has felt like anytime anybody got a shot at Cull or ebony in that first battle it was a glancing blow and we know that wanda could kind of sort of on, a, on Wanda's best day, she could give Thanos with a cold a pretty good run for his money, as long as he doesn't have any stones. And Proxima Midnight just has no patience for Scarlet Witch and bats her around. And we know that the Vision is like a friggin' robot super god. So that Vision and Scarlet Witch can barely stand up to Proxima Midnight and... I Bleachy Mask... Uh, Corvus Glaive is... So incredible that when the other three show up and they're able to give that fight... I mean, Black Widow, for a total human, Black Widow puts up a lot of fight against a lot of magic aliens.
1: You know, I think it harkens back to something you said earlier this episode about how they weren't expecting magic. I don't think it's that they don't expect magic or they don't expect robots or they don't expect warriors. I think most places you usually just have the one. I don't think they were expecting all of these different... Types of warriors and creatures and and powerful beings to be allies so much of thanos's army in his his Black Order is pretty one-note. They're all the same, even if they have sort of concentrations. They've all got the same look. They're all rocking the same type of name. They're all the same ideology. They're all pretty same note. And I just think they keep being taken off guard by the diversity of the Avengers when it comes to power set and, and skill.
0: So you're saying that the very one-note, one-color team could be defeated By diversity. Interesting. Interesting. What a great metaphor for the Avengers, and what a terrific way to cut this episode. Next episode, we're going to take a look at the remainder of the film, now that just about everybody but the brilliant Wakandans have been introduced. Until we get there, Kevo,
1: where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or you can find me kicking around shitposting memes about Marvel on our Facebook page. Look us up on Facebook, Husbands Talking More or Less.
0: You can check out our awesome comic work at KidRiotComics.com, where we have our diverse comic filled with incredible superheroes for a modern storytelling audience. You can check out our other shows like X's for Podcast, where along with our boyfriend and our best friend, Jonah and Kyle, respectively. We take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise starting with Giant Size X-Men number one. I also do Now and Again with my childhood best friend, Chris, where we take a look at Now That's What I Call Music. This summer, we're spending some time with Carly Rae Jepsen doing the Emotion Minute. You don't want to miss that. If you like what we do, you'll love what they do on the other shows here at the Cage Club Network. So check out cageclub.me and don't forget to look at the Patreon and contribute and shape the network's future. As always, you can find me on Instagram at nicoaction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay. Friday,
1: get us out of here. Beep, boop, you got it, boss. I don't have a Friday impression.